Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsa, The Well, a podcast about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Thursday, July 14th, 2022. And this episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that has focused on the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Our guest today is Volodymyr Yermolenko, who is the editor-in-chief at an online website called Ukraine World. Welcome, Volodymyr. How are you? Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us today. So to start off with, can we get some background about your education and professional career? Sure. Uh, I was born in uh, 1980 in then Soviet Union. was born in Kiev, uh, went to school in Kiev, then went to Kiev Mahila Academy, one of the uh, greatest Ukrainian universities, the oldest university in Eastern, Eastern Europe, which dates back to, to the uh, Baroque era, to the 17th century. And... Uh, I, I did my master degree in philosophy in Kivmahela Academy. Then I went to Budapest in Hungary and made my master degree in international relations. Uh, then I came back to Kiev, but also started making a PhD, a doctorat in, uh, in political studies in France, in Paris. Uh, then I defended my doctorat in uh, 2011. But throughout, throughout the 2000s and 2010, uh, I was also working for a Kiev media organization called Internews Ukraine. And in uh, 2000, around, of course, I, I participated actively on, on Maidan, on Euromaidan, 2013, 2014. And then we uh, started this project because we understood Ukraine world, because we understood that uh, there is, of course, a lack of knowledge about Ukraine throughout the world, in the English-speaking world. So gradually it, it developed from my, just a network of journalists uh, uh, from all around the world who are uh, dealing with Ukrainian issues. And we sit, set up this group of journalists and experts and analysts, which comprises several hundreds people as a Google group to communicate reg- regularly, to discuss things, to explain things between ourselves. Then we set up a website, ukraineworld.org. Then we set up a, a podcast, Explaining Ukraine. Then we made uh, our presence in, in Twitter, on Facebook. And today we are having a big audience on, on social media, uh, over 200,000 followers on Twitter and about 100,000 followers on, on Facebook. Also, lots of listeners on our podcast explaining Ukraine. Of course, this is due to to Russian invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And uh, since the start of this invasion, we are working nonstop. Our team, which is scattered around the globe and around not only Ukraine, but other countries. But we also are doing a lot of volunteer work here in Kyiv. Uh, with my wife, and uh, we are we're traveling a lot of, across Ukraine, bringing some humanitarian aid, bringing some assistance to people, and and also recording testimonies and uh, trying to understand how people have lived through the occupation. If we're talking about Kyiv region or Chernihiv region, 
and uh, how they are now living in, in cities close to the front line. So we're doing the information work, but I'm also a philosopher, so I'm continue to be a philosopher, reading and writing a lot of texts in, in various languages, English, French, German, Ukrainian, of course, to, to understand what is happening and to explain what is happening. And I did read one of your very good articles actually talking about Ukrainian national identity. So I want to probe into that a bit right now. Exactly what is Ukraine's national identity? How was it shaped? And at this point, do you think all citizens of Ukraine share that identity? I think we are, when we're talking about identity, it's obviously, obviously very plural. And Ukraine is also a very plural country. So there are people with different language identities, with different ethnic identities, with different religious identities. But I think it is, it is totally wrong to, to think that Ukraine is divided according to some of its identities. For example, that there is a clash. It's, it's wrong to believe that there is a clash between Christians and Muslims. We don't see this clash. We, we see, on the contrary, a remarkable consolidation between people with Christian backgrounds, people with Muslim backgrounds, meaning primarily Crimean Tatars, but not only. And uh, we also see remarkable consolidation between Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers. This is not a, an issue that separates people. Of course, there are discussions to which extent Ukrainian language should be the language of the country. But obviously, it's, it's not a question of you know, language unification. Many people continue to, to speak both languages. So uh, I think we should look for the Ukrainian identity somewhere else, not in the ethnic, religious, or some other things, not even in the culture of things. I think we should look at the Ukrainian identity in the, in the way how the political life is organized, how the life in a society, in a group is organized. And here I would say, and this is something that every Ukrainian would say, I think, this is what our public opinion polls are testifying, is that there is a sense of freedom, very important sense of freedom in Ukrainian society. And this sense of freedom is both the, the freedom of the individual and the freedom of, of the community. So in a way, the, the struggle for Ukrainian independence goes hand in hand with the struggles for individual freedom. And here we, we, we see remarkable remarkable mixture of both liberal and uh, patriotic agendas. Or conservative agendas. And I think that politically, if we look at the Ukrainian intellectual history, the history of Ukrainian political thought, we will see a, a, repeating, a repeating argument, uh, which is twofold. First is that the, the politics is a sphere of a contract, the contractual vision of politics. Well, this is a very important thing, meaning that citizens and the authorities are uh, in the contractual relations in which both of them have not only rights, but also obligations. And this is something that is very different from the autocratic vision of the world, which is, which is present in Russia, for example. And the second thing in this political identity, I think, is the idea that politics has, uh, is always a grassroots thing. So it's a, a, a bottom-up movement. It's not a top-down thing. And uh, politics is, um, starts from the local communities, then it enlarges to the bigger communities. And in a way, the state is a kind of a, 
this uh, amalgamation of uh, different communities. So, so this bottom-up vision of politics is very specific for Ukrainians, for Ukrainian uh, society, for the way how Ukrainians see themselves. And this is something that unites uh, miraculously a Russian speaking from Kharkiv or Dnipro with a Ukrainian speaking uh, person from Lviv, for example. And why do you think Russian President Putin and his national leaders, why are they so opposed to the concept of a Ukrainian nation? And do you think all Russians share his view? Well, I don't know if all the Russians, I I never, I try to avoid this concept. All, all the Russians, I think if we didn't talk to everybody from the 140 million people, we will not be able to uh, make this conclusion whether all the Russians are the same or not. Obviously, there are people with different views there, but uh, the dominating view is that uh, Ukraine is a something is a wrong Russia, and, and I think uh, I think the, the kind of a disease in the Russian intellectual life and, and political life is that there is a perception of Ukraine as a kind of Russia. The Putinists say that Ukraine is a worse version of Russia. The liberals say that Ukraine is a better version of Russia, and Ukrainians are saying that Ukraine is not a version of Russia uh, at all. And uh, I think that the, the problem for Russian national identity is that actually it was very late. If we, if we see this, this story of national identities, the way how the community, I, community forms itself, we would see that Ukrainian national identity was earlier. It was earlier in the 19th century. It was earlier trying to look deep into the folkloric traditions it was earlier, well, Ukrainian purely national literature. We, we, we talk about Taras Shevchenko, for example. It was earlier than, uh, than Russian, I would say, folk-based literature, right? The, uh, by folk, I mean those literature digging into the folk traditions of, of literature, of songs, of fairy tales, only that, uh, only that um, aspect. And I think there is a, a, certain, a certain fear in the Russian society, that basically, if they lose Ukraine, then they they lose uh, the very link of Russia to Europe or even to Russians themselves. And uh, this this fear is very present. Therefore, they they really think that their roots are in the medieval times, and the the, the roots in the medieval times of Russia is basically Ukrainian lands. Is Kiev? Is Chernihiv? Is Yaslav is uh, many many other cities which are now in Ukraine, and um, I think there is a, this strong this strong fear, and therefore they are trying to prove to themselves that basically Ukrainians do not exist, that this is a part of of the Russian people, and also Belarusians are part of the Russian people. Therefore, this imperial project, Russian imperial project, goes through not only through occupation or violence, but also through a, a big attempt to assimilate, to, to kind of uh, erase the differences. This is a, a big difference of Russian imperial project with, for example, the European overseas empires, which were stressing the difference of those nations that they colonized. Russians are trying to erase the difference uh, primarily of Ukrainians and Belarusians, uh, those East Slavic nations that they, they actually have colonized. And when Ukrainians are trying to say, no, we are different, we're different politically, 
of course for russia it's it's a big big challenge and um, a big problem and given putin's beliefs then uh, do you think it's possible to have a diplomatic solution to the war in ukraine well uh at this moment nobody's ready to talk you know today we had a absolutely horrible missile strike on Vinnytsia and we see a, a new pattern of russians is that they do not hide actually that they're targeting civilian objects they're targeting crowds of people on uh, in late june there was a strike on a shopping center in uh, kremenchuk in poltava region now there is a strike uh in the downtown of Vinnytsia. These are peaceful towns very far from the front line in the central Ukraine, and uh, which obviously do not have any ammunition, do not have any storages of, of equipment, as, as Russia might claim. And uh, every time we see these strikes, and there are strikes during the day, not during the night, uh, we know that Russians were, have been striking mostly during the night. Now they're striking during the day the missile strikes, uh, which are absolutely devastating. And of course, lots of dead, lots of children dead, lots of, lots of peaceful people dead, uh, dead civilians dead. And uh, of course, for Ukrainians, every such strike is just uh, makes things unbelievable. So it increases the, the anger, it increases the hatred in, uh, to, to the Russian army, to the Russians. And I think it's normal, it's, it's understandable. The problem is that uh, maybe in one day there will be negotiations, but first Russia should be weakened. Russia should want these negotiations. And to want these negotiations, it should want them not because it is winning, but because it is losing. Because Russia's strategy has always been the so-called coercion to peace. I mean, having a big victories on the playground, on the battleground, and then force the other to the negotiations i think we should turn this uh, the situation because otherwise the war will will be endless we should make russians lose we should lead to the russian defeat and we are actually approaching to this uh, the latest news from the front line the way how ukrainians are using the high precision weapons they they received from the west for example HIMARS, the multi rocket launch systems shows that they're increasingly effective. They are targeting the Russian ammunition stores, and Russians are just running out of the ammunition of the shells to bomb Ukrainian cities, Ukrainian positions. So I think this is important. And th there is a myth that Russia is invincible. That, that, that's a myth. That's uh, the events in March showed when Russians just quickly were able to retreat from Kyiv, from Chernihiv, from Sumy, show that Russians can be defeated, that if uh, uh, attacked very smartly and with high-precision technologies, their army can be defeated because it's always, Russian army, so always a question of quantity, not quality. Yeah, so on, uh, here, of course, Ukrainian army is very brave, but uh, it always needs support from the international community. Well, given all these factors, then, do you think long term that Ukraine has the resources itself to remain a sovereign and independent state, considering it has such a large, hostile and militarized neighbor in Russia? What choice do we have? 
do we have a choice? Uh, the Ukrainian question is now a Hamletian question, to be or not to be. So if you are facing this situation when, when the, th th there is a clear misunderstanding of this war in, in some of the, uh, of, in some of the uh, Western minds, uh, I think is that uh, they perceive it as, as a war for territories. It's like, give Russia some territories and then everything will be fine. But Ukraine has already given some territories and it didn't stop Russia. Crimea is annexed. The, the parts of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast are basically already de facto parts of Russia. Uh, Georgia and Moldova can say the same. Moldova has given up the Transnistria. Did it stop Russia from invading other countries? Georgia lost the territories in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Did it stop Russia? No. Because Russia has an imperial project which doesn't have borders. As Putin once said, uh, Russian borders are nowhere. So this is not a, a fight for, for territories. This is a fight for domination in Europe, uh, in which uh, Russia doesn't see Ukraine existing as an independent state, and maybe some other countries as well. So Russia's goal is to re-establish Europe of 1945. That was clearly said in... Uh, late last year and ukrainians i think uh, we we don't have a choice of course we, we ukrainians will be fight and uh, will be fighting and uh, this is something that our history shows us very well ukrainians continue to fight very very long so the question about resources is a very important question and I, uh, here of course if ukraine is left alone it will not be able to to resist uh, for well, very long time, but I think history has changed already, and we see enormous support from all over the world. Sometimes we are we are saying that the support is not enough; that there should be more. But it doesn't mean that we are not grateful. We're grateful enormously for all the supports coming from European countries, from the United States, from Canada, from Australia, from Japan, uh, etc. So there is, I think, a, a dramatic change in the way how the world, how other countries perceive this war, perceive this war as real, the, the fight for values, for uh, a real fight of democracy against autocracy. And we, if we understand all that, if we continue to unite our efforts, uh, Russia can be defeated, obviously. Well, Adibir, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you one last question. Uh, you ended up your last statement by talking about uh, the EU and the Western countries supporting Ukraine at this point and that their viewpoints have changed. But what about NATO? Do you think there's any chance that at some point Ukraine might be part of NATO? Of course, because uh, if Ukraine is not part of NATO, this war will begin, uh, will, will continue endlessly. So uh, look at well, the question is, some of the interpretations of, of this war is that, okay, NATO expanded and then it irritated Russia and then Russia attacked. But the question is why Russia is not irritated with Finland and Sweden's entrance to the NATO. Look at how Putin reacted to that. He was just indifferent. Therefore, it was not a question of NATO enlargement. Next question, uh, Belarus didn't, didn't show any intention to join NATO and the European Union. It was always anti-NATO, anti-EU, and, and still it, it is now de facto occupied by Russians. Next question. Imagine if Central and Eastern Europe countries like Baltic states, Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, 
will not be a part of nature right now. I would say that in this case, the war would already be not only in Ukraine, but in these countries as well, because Russia would would feel that it, it can invade Poland again, as it did in 1939 with the Nazis. So... Uh, I think one of the midterm goals uh, in for Ukrainians for the democratic world is to push Russia for a military defeat, for kind of regime change or at, re- at least some some uh, refabrication of the regime, and yes, accelerate Ukraine's accession to NATO. That would create the security wall which Russia will not cross again. Volodymyr. Thank you so much for coming on Krenitsia today. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I have been speaking with Volodymyr Yermolenko, who is editor-in-chief at Ukraine World, which is an online website featuring information, news, and other kinds of things about Ukraine produced by the NGO Internews Ukraine. And this podcast has been produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that is focused on the global Ukrainian community since 1933. I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia. Until next time, that's all for now.